It's great to be with you all this morning. I bring greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where, as was said earlier, I serve on staff. And we pray often for you and for your pastor, Mike Law, and his work amongst you. So it's a joy to be with you this morning and to sing God's praises together, to hear wonderful prayers uh, directing our thoughts and affections towards Jesus. I should like to bring a message to you this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. If you're using the pew Bibles provided, I believe you can find that on page 811. Page 811. You'll be helped if you turn there now. My plan for this morning is simply to walk through this passage, making a few observations. But if I may, let me pray one more time as we dive in. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to save sinners. Lord, where would we be apart from this grace? So Lord, I pray that as as we hear your word, as we gather around your word now, that you would work, that you would convict and confront and use these words to build us up into him who is our head, into Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. What are the characteristics of good leadership? I wonder if you're asked that question, what, what do you answer? What, what are the characteristics of good leadership? Well, in her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, Doris Kearns Goodwin tells of how four American presidents developed these characteristics of leadership. She looks back into some of their early childhood and talks about how it was trials in their past that had cultivated the character that they used effectively in turbulent times. She talks about President Lincoln and uh, President uh, Lyndon Johnson and others, of how in the early days their character was formed and then they were pressed in the halls of power to be able to use that, those abilities, that character, that insight. And, but being so removed from the daily lives of their people, as many are in executive branches of government or in different positions, they face another crisis, all four of them. And that was how do they attain and regain the trust of their people that they're so far removed from? How could they show that being so confined in these halls of power didn't mean that they had forgotten who had sent them there in the first place? Think about it in our day as well, that how much time, money, and attention are given and cultivated uh, to cultivate the right perception. No, so not just for political candidates, but for many, from, many, from corporations to individuals. Speeches are calibrated, it seems, to garner the right trust, to appeal to the right audiences, or even in social media or on the internet, what things are used, algorithms are used to get our information in front of people who would already agree with us, away from those who would challenge us. So at times, it seems that even we now, in our own lives, and certainly those that fill halls of power across this land and across the world are more concerned with right perception than the reality of virtue. So such questions of perception and virtue are challenged in our passage this morning as we see one who possesses great power, infinite power beyond anything in this world, but he is one who draws near. He's one who comes challenging the perceptions of many, And he confronts the officers of his day on these grounds. 
our passage this morning just by way of a little bit of context that occurs in a well-known passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. It spans from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And in this familiar passage, Jesus doesn't, show, doesn't seek to inspire his followers in some sort of mo- modern sense of giving positive thoughts or positive vibes. Instead, Jesus brings teaching that challenges, that immediately challenges the teachers of his own day. And as we'll see, as he unpacks a new authority and, and shows who he is in his insight and in his teaching. He comes preaching what the law requires against many of the misuses and abuses of his own day. Even in the opening verses of chapter 5, those familiar with the chapter will know the Beatitudes, where Jesus prescribes a series of blessings to, to his followers of what it means to live the truly blessed life. But even there, he's setting up a conflict with many who think living a blessed life looks something like other than persecution, other than being poor in spirit, other than being meek. But Jesus says this is where true blessing really does lie. Later in the same chapter and right before ours, Jesus sets up a series of specific and explicit challenges to the teachers of his day that is the scribes and Pharisees. And our passage is the final of a series of six such challenges uh, in in the book of Matthew chapter 5. So we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. Let me read our passage now. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here in our passage, Jesus gives a right command. He clarifies what the right command is. And He supports it with right reasons pointing to how we may attain right righteousness. And those three rights are going to form the headings of uh, my sermon this morning. Right commands. Right command, that's verses 43 to 44. Right reasons. Verses 45 to 47, and then right righteousness, verse 48. My prayer is that we, as we consider this passage this morning, that you'll leave with a better understanding of who Jesus is and what He taught, and that you would desire to grow more in your obedience of Him. So let's continue looking at the passage by looking at the right command. Look there at verse 43, where Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, So here Jesus is simply quoting what his audience would would have heard, would likely have heard in their synagogues, from their rabbis, from the scribes. And what what they've heard is a half-truth. At least it's halfway true. The first part of what they've heard is in fact true, that it is an Old Testament command. The teachers in Jesus' day did get something right. They were to love your neighbor. This is Leviticus 19.18. Now, Jesus later in the book of Matthew and in the other Gospels does take up how even the teachers of their day misunderstood that who that their neighbor was and through their system had, elaborate, had built this elaborate uh, mechanism to clarify and to actually alienate someone who actually should be considered their neighbor. 
But here in our passage, it's the second phrase that Jesus draws our attention to and garners the attention of his teaching. So these teachers and scribes had added to God's command a misinterpretation. You see that there? It's that second phrase, and hate your enemy. Their misunderstandings not only confused people reading the Bible, but also threatened to undermine the clarity of God's command. To love your neighbor as yourself, as the command says. But nowhere in the Old Testament does God say to hate your enemies. God's people were to actually be the opposite. They they weren't to hate their enemies, but they were to image God to them. In fact, there are many passages in the Old Testament that would commend the exact opposite. Not hate, but love. God tells His people multiple times to be benevolent towards outsiders and to show kindness to their enemies. There are many examples that we could look at, but let's just look at two briefly. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. This is far from hating them. Hating them would apply, imply that you let them starve, that you pass by them. But here God is commending as wisdom, actually giving your enemy something to eat, something to drink. One more example. Go a little further back into the book of Leviticus. Go to that chapter, verse 19, where our, the first part of the command was quoted. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 to 34. Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you see, even just from the, and there are other verses that we could look at, and even in the Old Testament, Outsiders and foreigners, often who Israel would have considered at times their enemies, are not to be resisted or reviled amongst God's people, but they are to be loved in particular ways as God commands. However, lest we miss the thrust of the scribe's interpretation and perhaps become prideful in our own thinking, it is easy to see, as we understand the Old Testament, why the scribes and teachers in Jesus' day, got this so wrong. The same scriptures that we just read do commit, that commend beneficence towards all are also ones that call Israel as God's elect people to punish God's enemies. This is seen most clearly, certainly in the Israelite conquest of Canaan, as such violence against God's enemies does form an important backdrop of the Old Testament. But don't miss God's plan and purposes and even, even this violence towards God's enemies to clear them out of the land that he had promised to Egypt. God used his people to judge those who were opposed to him. However, such acts, God governed by specific commands. We see that God pronounced a verdict on the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 23. And that he prescribed the way his people were to treat them even in the midst of war in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. But nowhere still, even in the midst of such conquests, does God tell his people to hate their enemies. From this we see that the scribes and teachers of the law in Jesus' day had mixed Old Testament teaching. 
They committed the error of extracting wrong principles from the wrong texts. They cultivated a system that narrowed who should be the recipients of love and kindness. Neighbors, in their view, were to be loved, and enemies were to be despised and opposed. From such an error this morning, I do think there's an important lesson for us. Those it's vital to carefully attend to the words of Scripture, to understand the balance of the Old Testament, to understand the continuity of God's revelation to us. That God is the, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. God, God is loving in the Old Testament and He's loving in the New. And His people are called to image this love in particular ways. Lack of care and proper concern for understanding the Bible on its own terms leads to this grievous and other errors. And it misrepresents God's character to the world. The God of Israel is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the God who will not leave also the guilty unpunished. These two things are balanced. Love and judgment. He's the God of mercy and the God of wrath. He calls his people to display his character in specific ways. And we discern this best by giving right attention to all of God's word and considering what he said in the right context. Parents, for you this morning, this is why it's so vital to instruct your children in the scriptures, to patiently endure with, endure with their questions, to answer them honestly, to help them build the right categories for understanding the Bible, understanding who God is. It's also why as members of a church, this morning we devote so much time to gathering around the word, celebrating its realities through song approaching God as we're instructed to by prayer and hearing it preached now to studying it on Wednesday nights and discussing it in your homes throughout the week. Understanding the scriptures rightly is vital to your spiritual health and crucial to witnessing God in a world that's turned against him. Now from the scribes' misunderstandings, we do learn to carefully approach God's word lest we do repeat their error. They did get some things right. They understood the first part of the command to love your neighbors but they missed the thrust of the law. On this point, I'm reminded of something the late J.I. Packer once wrote. That He said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. The scribes got it halfway right, but they thought and get in there and halfway obeying the law as it was intended that they understood the whole thing and that was fatal for them. But thankfully, as we are drawn to verse 44, we have a better teacher than the scribes. Jesus here, I say to you, repeat that, but I say to you. Note what Jesus doesn't say as he sets up his, the right command. He doesn't enter into a debate with the scribes and teachers by citing different traditions of thought or citing this scribe and that teacher, this rabbi. Instead, his statement is simple, clear, and direct. Jesus cuts through the noise of centuries of misinterpretation and misapplication when he says, but I say to you. With such a simple phrase, Jesus establishes his teaching as superior to his contemporaries and even those who have come before it's the sixth time in this chapter, maybe this afternoon you can go back through uh, Matthew 5 and, and see and count all six of them. It's the sixth time in this chapter that Jesus says such a phrase. And through it, Jesus is commanding the attention of his hearers. 
As his followers will soon see, his authority is in fact unrivaled. As his commandments are clear. Who else speaks like this man? The original audience wonders. And I would commend that to you today as well. Who else speaks what's condition and the Old Testament law? Turn a few chapters over to Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, to see the effect of Jesus' teaching on his original audience. I'll read there just two verses. This is after Jesus finishes it. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And notice what his hearers, how they responded. Matthew writes, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So even from this early point in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, his hearers noticed something unique about him. His teaching was different. He spoke soundly with clarity. And his words, well, they carried authority. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're considering Christianity, maybe you're coming with a, a family member, what do you make of Jesus' authority? What do you make of this one who we spend so much time talking about in gatherings like this? And maybe not so much this morning what, what we say about him, but what the scriptures say he said. How does his teaching strike you? I wonder if your approach to Jesus has been one of maybe distance, distant respect or admiration. Maybe you find his teachings like these or even the Beatitudes that we discussed earlier uh, to be insightful, maybe morally clear. Perhaps you, he's on a short list of good moral teachers throughout human history. If so, I wonder if you've properly considered what kind of authority Jesus has. In our text, you catch a glimpse of it, but to see its full flowering, you look through the rest of the book of Matthew and go to Matthew 28, verse 19. There, Jesus' claim is to have all authority in heaven and on earth. I wonder if you thought about that. What does it mean that Jesus has all authority? That Jesus claims that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, this would be a good thing for you to talk about maybe after lunch today or with somebody after the service. Just ask your Christian friend, what does it mean that Jesus has all authority? And perhaps a follow-up question. But Jesus then goes on. And friends, as one who teaches with authority, Jesus then goes on in verse 44 to state his command clearly. When he says, love your enemies. As we've already discussed, Jesus is not changing the Old Testament law. We've looked at this is actually implied and made explicit throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus here is emphasizing what's always been. God's people, and particularly now, Jesus' followers, are to love their enemies. Jesus then goes on to clarify who, the, who our enemies are and how you should treat them. For those first hearers of Jesus' words, we should note that they likely would have thought of the Roman occupiers of their land uh, when Jesus mentioned their enemies. There were, of course, murmurs of Jewish revolt. Uh, they were very common, and many saw the Roman occupation of Israel as an affront to God and oppressive to God's people. Not long before Jesus said these words in Matthew 5, there, were, there was another teacher in the same land and some neighboring counties uh, who led a rebellion. 
and sought to deliver Israel from foreign rule. And throughout Jesus' ministry, as you read through the Gospels, you, you kind of hear echoes and murmurings of, is, is now the time? Is now the time where He's going to take up His army and actually cast off the weight of Roman rule? You even notice the scribes and Pharisees, they seek to trap Him in, in actually making it clear that he, he is the true King and He is going to deliver Israel from these foreign occupiers. But Jesus doesn't ever fall into this trap. But instead, Jesus here, as He does elsewhere, demonstrates the power of a new kingdom. Instead of conquest by sword and revolt, Jesus calls His disciples to love those who oppose them. Not only are they to love those whose purposes don't align with God's, they are to love those who persecute them. And instead, you, you just sometimes can put these two together, enemies and those who persecute. Jesus is actually going to the extreme. There's a lot of enemies that, that we may be able to imagine. Uh, those who oppose us in different, different ways or just whose purposes maybe aren't aligned with ours. We're trying to do something else in the world and their purpose seems to kind of counteract ours. And we're not able to do the good thing that we would like. But Jesus here couldn't be sharper. He draws his audience's attention and ours to their persecutors. And persecutors are those who intend to harm you. Not those who just allow you to exist, but those who exist to extinguish you. Those who exist to oppose you. Sometimes and those who exist to try to kill you. Now, this too is testified to in the Old Testament. Just consider briefly David and Saul. When Saul persecuted David and did evil to him, David instead of returning evil for evil, returned good for evil. And you think about Joseph, who instead of returning evil for evil in the land of Egypt when there was famine throughout all of Mesopotamia, he returned good to his brothers for the evil that they did him. This too is an Old Testament teaching. And it carries through to the New Testament. So we understand that we're to love our enemies, but what does this love look like? How are we to love our persecutors? Well, Jesus again instructs us as to what shape this love is to take. Look there again in verse 44. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray, he says, for those who persecute you. So what's one way that we're to love those who persecute us? What's one way that we can love our enemies? Well, Jesus' words here are to pray for them. Now, prayer gets a lot of press these days as something ineffective. Uh, and as a means to move beyond. It's not just enough to pray, but more uh, is asked for. However, that isn't to actually understand the Bible's teaching. Actions are to be included in these things, and that would be, of course, in Jesus' in Jesus's teaching here. But here we are told to pray for those who oppose us and who oppose God. What's implied here is pray for those who oppose us, not so much in our daily lives, although that is true, but pray for those who oppose Jesus. Pray for those who will oppose Him. Pray for those who will persecute Him and His followers. Earlier in chapter 5, Jesus encourages those who would be, be persecuted because of His name. This is in Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. The persecution that comes to Jesus' people is direct opposition to Jesus, but Jesus counts those who are persecuted as blessed because it's he who identifies with them. But again, instead of taking up arms to fight back, Jesus' Jesus's call is to approach God on behalf of our enemies. 
Again, I said this a little bit earlier, but it, this doesn't mean that we should only pray for our enemies. Prayer is a place to start and end. But other passages do unpack what Jesus signals here, that loving our enemies is a way that we orient our lives towards those who oppose us. Consider such texts as Paul in Romans 12, verses 14 through 20. We may not have time to turn there. You feel free to note it and look at it later. But there, he said, Paul says to bless those who persecute you. That's verse 14. Or remember what we read in Proverbs 25 to 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, Paul quotes this and he says, For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, this is in Romans 12. There are many other examples that we can consider both in Old and New Testaments. But the point is clear. Jesus, again, would have his followers return good for evil. But back to the important point of prayer for uh, our persecutors. A Christian's prayer for our enemies as those who have access to God as Father is effective. As Jesus will soon instruct his followers in Matthew chapter 6, we have a Father in heaven who hears our prayers. Even if, it, even if enmity seems to increase this world or persecution seems to wax and never wane, by praying to God about our enemies, we can trust that He sees and that He will respond. He will respond to the evil that they pursue. It may not be now. It may not be according to our timetable. But God will respond to the evil that is intended to be carried out against His enemies. His response may only become clear on that last day where he gives all to what gives all according to what they owe. But praying for enemies, importantly for us, can cultivate a proper concern for them. To pray for those that oppose us causes us to elevate, evaluate, excuse me, their situation and can help empathize or, or even sympathize with their circumstances. As we remember that we too, apart from God's grace, were once alienated from God. But because of our shared humanity with our enemies, we can pray for them with tenderness and pity. So allow me on this point to offer three brief ways that you can pray for your enemies. Three brief ways to pray for your enemies. I'll give them to you up front and I'll explain them a little bit more. First, pray that God would convert them. Pray that God would convert them. Second, pray that God would change them. That God would change them. Third, pray that God would stop them. Let's look back at that first one. First, it is to be in the darkness of our sin, don't we? Sin blinds us to what is right and good in the world. We were dead once in our sins and without hope in this world. What we pursued as good was in fact evil and against God. And God counted us as His enemy. But God made us alive through Christ. He awakened our moral sensibilities. He awakened our hearts to turn to Him in love. Not because of what we did or because of what we tried to attain. That was evil. That was corruption. That was sin. God turned us to Him. Pray all the more that God would convert His enemies now. Pray that God would convert your enemies as they seek to carry out evil that opposes the cause of Christ in the world. Pray that he would convert them like he did Saul, who who was a persecutor of the church and who God made a champion for the cause of Christ. He is indeed still willing and able to do this work now. 
Pray that God would convert them. Second, pray that God would change them. In Proverbs 21.1, it's written that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So here we can learn that pray that God would change and direct the hearts of those who oppose you. Pray that God would change and direct the hearts of those who oppose his church in this land and in other lands. Pray that they'd stop persecuting God's people and that their heart would turn aside from doing evil. Even if God doesn't convert them, it's worthwhile to pray that he would help them see, as lost in sin as they are, help them see what's good and right. Pray that God would change them. Third, pray that God would stop them. It is indeed loving to pray that God would stop someone from pursuing evil. When people pursue evil, destruction follows. That may not be seen immediately, but it's true. Destruction follows evil plans. God has instituted, and one way to keep a check on such evil, He has instituted governments. We read about this in Romans 13 and other chapters. God has instituted governments to stop and restrain evil. Pray that governments would take seriously such a role. And that they would stop those who are intent on doing wicked things. Pray that these governments and other authorities would punish properly and according to what is just. That those who plot evil would find their plans thwarted and find the consequences of the law that God has ordained to come to bear on them. So pray that God would convert your enemies. Pray that God would change your enemies. Pray that God would stop your enemies and his. Now, Jesus' command to pray for your persecutor is, of course, as we looked at, at the spring of love for your enemies. If Jesus tells us to love and pray for those who oppose us and and him and and those who work against his advancement, uh, the advancement of his kingdom, how much more should we bear with those who oppose us in less significant ways? If he's, what he's doing, and Jesus is appealing to pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are against you and against me. This is a reason from the greater to the lesser. So from it, we, we see that if we can pray for those, if we love those who are so opposed to us at a level of good and evil, of right and wrong, how much more can we bear with and love those who oppose us in other ways? For instance, the colleague who seems to have it out for you at work. The family member who always seems so critical, who just seems to oppose you at every turn. Love them. Pray for them. Or perhaps most acutely this month, love those who mock you and who may call you a bigot for believing what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality. Our call couldn't be clear to love them and to pray for them. Pray that God would change them. Pray that God would convert them. Pray that God would stop any evil in their plans from unfolding. For these and others, Jesus' command is to love them and to not ceasing to pray, not cease to pray for them. Children, I wonder, those that are here, if you've considered what, it's, what it means to pray for those who oppose you, or pray, maybe you pray for those who have, you have a hard time with. Is there someone at school who always seems to have it out for you, uh, who always seems to notice where you are and always likes to get in your way? Well, maybe talk to your parents about what it would mean to pray for them. To pray, pray that you could do them good. That you could show them love. And be kind towards them. 
command is to love our enemies. And good to talk about over lunch today. Brothers and sisters, the command is to love our enemies. It's a heavy command. And then, knowing how heavy it is, Jesus turns our attention to the foundations of such love. Jesus says we don't have to look inside of ourselves to define love. Instead, Jesus calls our attention to God. Do you want to know what love is? Look then to God, God, God's example. How do you show love to others? The answer is quite simply, imitate God. Which leads us to second second heading, which is much shorter than the first. Uh, right reasons. Look at verses 45 to 47. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Look there at verse 45. Why do we love our enemies? Jesus says, so that you may be God's sons, and we can imply from them who is in heaven. What's in view here is that being God's sons, and we can imply from that being God's daughters as well, uh, is representing God's character uh, and representing the character of their heavenly father in this passage by imitating how he loves his enemies. So when Jesus says that you may become, he's, he's not here commenting on the grounds of salvation, how you attain uh, fellowship with God. Instead, what Jesus is commenting on is the fruit of salvation. What, what actions result as being counted God's children. So for those in Christ, knowing God as Father is fixed. Rather, what Jesus is drawing our attention to is how we show our, our sonship. One common thing for me when I was growing up, uh, I was often compared, compared with my dad. I was talked about how you look, you're a spinning image of your father. You're a chip off, off the old block. Uh, when I see you, I see your father many years ago. But here, my status was, my status as my father's son, my father's actually in attendance with me here today uh, as well. So maybe you can, you can evaluate how much we actually look alike uh, now. But my status then and now is never in question about how much I, it was my resemblance. How much did I look like him? How much did I talk like him? How much did my actions, appearance included, remind people that knew me and my father of, of him? Similar things at work here. By, by becoming sons, Jesus is telling his followers to become sons in manner, in conduct, in their affections. They are to resemble their father in their love for their enemies. So here it's by loving those who oppose you that you image, Christian, your heavenly father in the world. As obedient sons, we gladly obey the father as we represent his character in the world. Jesus shows us this, he illustrates this by drawing our attention to, in fact, God's character. You see it there still in verse 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's care for creation is comprehensive. He cares for and provides for all that he's made. And his care, as we see it here, is impartial. He lovingly provides for those who love him and those who hate him. He endures the injustice of the wicked by providing sun and rain. Kids, one more thing for you to notice in, in verse 45 is notice 
who Jesus says owns the son? It's his son. And he causes it to rise. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. So as you're in school and you learn more about the water cycle or you learn more about the planets that orbit the sun, don't miss this simple truth that is throughout the scripture. That though we learn much about processes, that it is still God who owns it all, who governs it all by his eternal wills and law. God sustains his creation for an appointed end. God's friends and God's enemies sit under the same sun and receive rain from His benevolent hand. But such gracious provision for all is not to say in the least that God's love is the same towards all. Instead, those who count God counts as friends are those who have received His gracious provision in Christ. What separates the righteous from the unrighteous and the just from the unjust in God's eyes isn't here the, same, the sun that they sit under or the houses that they inhabit or the rain that falls on them, or anything that we share in common with others in the world. But what separates them is how they've received His merciful provision for them. Christians are those who once, as we've said, were God's enemies, but now by God's grace are counted as God's friends. However, it is His love that causes us, brothers and sisters, to love our enemies. We are moved to love our enemies because God loved us while we were His. Consider Romans 5.8 that says, God showed His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent His Son into the world that those who believe in Him may no longer be counted as enemies, but as friends. So, Christian, brothers and sisters, those who once were God's enemies and have now received His gracious provision in abundance... Why would we not more so care for our earthly enemies? Not only does the sun shine and rain fall on us, but we've received his special provision. Because we've so undeservedly received, let's allow such love to move us to love those who now are alienated from God. And for those still considering Christianity, don't mistake God's provision and his blessing now for his favor throughout all eternity. This would be a fatal mistake. The sun, though the sun rises on the just and unjust alike now, God will soon separate the just from the unjust. If you keep reading in the book of Matthew, a few chapters later, uh, Jesus talks about that he, He's the one who's going to stand and do this. So even though love compels us now, Christians, to include and to have you consider uh, the claims of Christ, don't presume on God's patience. Turn to Him and talk with someone about what this looks like. Second, we see in this section that we're to imitate God, imitate His character, but we're also to contrast the world. By loving our enemies, we exhibit God's character and we contrast what, we, what others find in the world. Look there, this is it again in verses 46 through 47. I won't read it again, but we'll look at a few of the words there. Here Jesus explains that the lives of His followers should distinguish them. Jesus is appealing to categories his hearers will be familiar with. Tax collectors and Gentiles would indeed be among the followers of Jesus. Uh, they weren't, they're not some kind of excluded class. Consider the, the author of this gospel at one time was in fact a tax collector. So Jesus isn't saying that these are excluded from God's promises, but he's, he's using a, a common, a common uh, association. But his point is to show 
that self-interest can no longer be the deciding motive for Christians. His followers aren't to show favor only to those who treat them kindly, like the tax collectors. He's saying don't seek the company only among those who can return good to you. Instead, he says, love your enemies, unlike what the tax collectors and Gentiles do, or those who are outside of Christ. The love that we're commanded to show draws us draws ourselves outward to those who otherwise would be opposed to us. We draw near to them because Christ has drawn near to us. Jesus' point is clear. As recipients of such great love being showered on us from God, our Father in Heaven, through Jesus, who's speaking these words to us, His followers are to show the, that a love that surpasses what, what this natural world has seen. Love of enemies expects nothing in return. It aims to do good when you expect to. How many of times it moves towards danger from what's safe? How many, of, how many missionary biographies are filled with such love? Names such as Adoniram Judson, William Carey, or Lottie Moon. All are those who, for love of God's enemies, forsook much, and it cost them more to see God's message of love and redemption through Christ to be spread amongst God's enemies. And more immediate to our passage, consider the example of Stephen, who preached the good news of God's enemies in the book of Acts. He preached this good news, and how was he repaid? Those he sought to love persecuted him. They sought his life. They assembled to stone him. And how did Stephen respond to them? Well, he Like his master commanded here, he prayed for them. He prayed for them just as Jesus instructed him to do. And just as Jesus did when he was on the cross. So finally we see in the last verse of our passage that all of this results in and compels us to a right righteousness. Right righteousness. Look there at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect. 45. Right love of our enemies issue is perfect. As we've observed in verse 45, right love of our enemies issues from the character of God. And here in verse 48, Jesus makes clear what true righteousness is. Jesus makes clear the standard of our lives. We're to imitate the Father. Now, there, there are two ways I think you can uh, interpret this passage. Allow me to discuss them both and tell you why I think that the second actually makes more sense um, when we consider the thrust of the passage. The first views this passage is uh, Jesus demanding moral perfection uh, to enter heaven amongst his followers. That it's a standard that they by themselves could not attain. Now, lest, lest you start to charge me with heresy or unbiblical opinion, I think that is theologically true. God does require perfection. From those that he's made, he does require them to be righteous. But I think that what Jesus is emphasizing here is there, it's a difference in emphasis. Uh, such perfection is theologically true, but God, and God makes no exceptions, and only the truly righteous will enter the kingdom of God. But instead, I think what Jesus is bringing out here is that he's, he's talking of, of a perfection of a different sort. That's a perfection that's focused not just on moral conduct, but on a wholeness of obedience. That is the Greek word translated here in the ESV for perfect uh, can often be translated or considered as representing more wholeness or singular devotion. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as maturity, kind of this full flowering, this maturity of uh, people and maturing of God's plans. 
So it seems here that Jesus is emphasizing both God and what he's extending to us is a singularity, a unity of obedience. That Jesus is summing up much of what's come before by pointing out this aspect into God's being. That God is not divided. That he doesn't plan one thing and execute and carry out another. But that what God thinks and what God does are unified. And this contrasts that of the scribes and Pharisees. They're ones who had celebrated the external. External obedience to the law. But instead what Jesus here is calling for is singular obedience. Obedience that issues from the heart. A perfection that's about whole obedience. Not just outward conformity. But obedience that is motivated by love of God, love of neighbor, and fail because it's focused only on what summary on this point, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees fail because it's focused only on what's external and doesn't spring from a loving heart. They think holiness can be achieved by external conformity. Instead, Jesus is showing that obedient the obedience God requires issues from a pure and loving heart. All that we are, Jesus is saying, matters. We are to be perfect, we are to be whole, we are to be complete, unified, as our Heavenly Father is. Our thoughts and our actions are to be oriented to move us to love. The elaborate system that the scribes developed had failed to deliver. But Jesus, contrasting their teaching, is calling for a unified and singular obedience centered on the love of God. So I wonder if you're tempted to err like the scribes or Pharisees, focusing more on external conformity, than rightly ordered loves. Or maybe your error tends to be the opposite. You spend more time thinking about right motivations and right evaluations and what obedience looks like from the heart, but you fail to carry out those uh, actions and those things that conform with outward obedience. See Jesus here is commending both. Right motivation and right action. Love for enemies that starts with prayer and results in active obedience before them. Jesus is for total and complete obedience in response to what God has done for us. And it's Jesus who shows us that the true obedience issues from a heart rightly oriented to God. A heart that we're hopeless to cultivate on our own. We need Him to show us and to give us this new heart. Instead, He extends, and knowing that we're hopeless on our own, He extends an invitation to follow. Following Him means loving your enemies. And praying for them like he did. He won't accept the signs of virtue without, the present, without its presence in the heart. By giving such teaching and leading in such an example, Jesus, Jesus shows that he's not only interested in outward signs, but a life conformed to the character of God. A life changed by the deep and vast love of God as seen through him, through his teaching, through his life. A love that is changed by imitating the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to love our enemies. That you would help us to know what this means in our lives. Help us to call right actions to mind as we pray for them. And so, Lord, I do just, we pray for those who oppose us. Lord, we pray that you would convert them. Pray that you would change them. Pray that you would stop them from carrying out wicked plans. We approach you out of love for you because you have given us new hearts to follow you. We ask that you would do this work in and amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.